Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. In 1609, Galileo made some interesting observations. It appeared that the Earth was revolving around the Sun and not, as was commonly accepted, the other way around. He observed that we weren't, in fact, the center of the universe. He would write a couple of argumentative letters that would circulate widely and in 1615 find their way to Inquisitor Father Niccolo Lorini. Lorini thought Galileo's heliocentric opinions were an attempt to reinterpret the Bible. Don't know if you've heard, but the Bible was kind of a big deal at the time. Kind of the law of the land. Galileo was found in violation of the Council of Trent and would travel to Rome the following year in order to defend himself and find himself debating with Monsignor Francesco Ingoli who would write an expert essay on why Galileo was frontin' and his Copernistic beliefs were garbage. The essay would use 18 physical and mathematical and four theological arguments about heliocentrism, so many reasons why it was just wrong. After this masterful vehicle for cold hard reasons entered the debate, an inquisitorial commission would declare heliocentrism to be foolish, absurd, and heretical, and Galileo should probably knock it off pronto. And so he did, because ain't nobody trying to get whacked during the Inquisition. So, for a few years he was careful, until 1632, when this gangsta went and published a book titled Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, in which he argued for and against heliocentrism. Though he was careful to not advocate specifically for heliocentrism, he did go and make the character arguing against it a big ol' idiot, thereby making it a heliocentric advocacy book. In 1633, he would find himself once again in the crosshairs of the Inquisition. He was tried and condemned for vehement suspicion of heresy, namely for his opinion that the sun lies motionless at the center of the universe, the earth moves around it, and that he dared to hold such beliefs even when they had been declared contrary to holy scripture. He was sentenced to life imprisonment and would remain on house arrest for the remainder of his life. And it seems crazy to us now, because he was right, right? I mean, as far as we know, there is no center of the universe, but he was right. He carefully observed astronomical movements, studied them, looked the mass understanding of the current day about the relationship between the sun and the earth, and said, nah, this, this is what's actually happening because I can see it's actually happening. 
Galileo, who has been called the father of modern physics, modern science, and the scientific method, was called a heretic. His observations foolish and absurd because they couldn't accept that what they thought they knew for a fact was wrong. And today, we live in a society where science is king. Logic and reason is king. And we think we have the answers. And there's no room for anything else. All right, so we'll abide by those rules for this one. What makes a scientific discovery science? Safely within the confines of logic and reason, safely in the realm of objective fact, agreed upon as irrefutable by the masses, does it need physical evidence, replicability, oversight of disinterested third parties, long and diligent experimentation and study, the stamp of approval by credible scientists? I wonder if remote viewing isn't considered real because it's a new-agey psychic power that couldn't produce 100% accurate results by the end, or because after two decades of controlled and careful experimentation, documentation, observability, funded by our own government, upheld by credible scientists, $20 million later, years of research, years of development later, under scrutiny of numerous oversight committees and providing significant results over and over and over again, if someone somewhere along the line just could not accept that what they thought they knew about our objective reality was wrong. As Joe McMonigle writes in his Remote Viewing Handbook, it's terribly difficult giving up a confirmed belief that what you are doing or have been doing is working or that you are right and not wrong in whatever position you might have taken. I was skeptical coming into this subject, what did I know about remote viewing starting out? Not a lot. Surprise, surprise. All I knew is that it was the psychic ability allowing you to see a distant location all within your mind. And it is. And it's a lot more. And even just that basic take on it sounds crazy, doesn't it? It really does sound like a superpower. A big hesitation for my skepticism on remote viewing, though, was the fact that the CIA and the DIA and the DOD had taken such a keen interest in the study and development of it for as long as they did. That said to me, there had to be something to it. And now, I'm convinced there is. Before we get into it, I've got to shout it out to Manscaped, y'all. Support for the Paranorm Girl podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped recently launched the ultimate hygiene bundle for the man in your life, the Performance Package. Help him join over 7 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. If my math is correct, that's about 14 million clean-shaved balls. All right, so, yeah, if you haven't gathered by now, the Paranorm Girl podcast has partnered with Manscaped for a little bit, and they sent me uh, some really nice stuff, you guys. Oh, my God. They sent me something called the Performance Package 4.0. It includes 
quite a few products. Um, I was really surprised actually going through it all. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk about a couple of those because I'm like stoked about them. I'm stoked. But I wanted to include this because I thought it was kind of funny and just really points the finger at how dumb I am, just how anal sometimes I am. I wrote a list as as I was going through, pulling out the products one by one, and uh, my impressions. And, and this is what my initial impressions were. Ooh, this is nice. Oh my God, so classy. This is sexy. Oh, wow, they sent the weed whacker. What? They sent the lawnmower. And that's it. That's what I got. That was my list. But yeah, no, seriously, so... I did want to just talk about uh, 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 my standout products. I haven't tried it all yet, but I do want to talk about everything that's in there. They did include something called the Crop Preserver and the Crop Reviver. The Crop Reviver is a ball toner, and the Crop Preserver is a ball deodorant. So obviously I have not tried these two. Um, I will have to give you the feedback from my boy, but one of my favorite items so far and I have used this personally, I used it last night, is the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. Now, I have never used a nose and ear hair trimmer in my life. Um, Whenever I saw them in the past, you know, like maybe a a, a boyfriend or a partner or whatever had them, I'd, I'd, you know, be snoopy, I'd take a look, but like I never wanted to use it because it looked like it was it was gonna you know grab onto your hair and and yank your brain out your nose holes. So I tried this last night because I was like, you know what, I got one. Let's let's give this a go. Let's give this a go, dudes. Super easy, super fast, super quiet. Uh, the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer helps reduce nicks, snags, and tugs in your delicate nose holes and. Uh, and and that's what it did for me. I, I did not feel not one tug, snag, anything. It was just really, really easy. And now I have uh, nice shaven nose holes. And and I keep admiring them in the mirror, which is weird, but I'm, I'm kind of proud of them now. Um, another item I just, I just wanted to uh, shout out and, and thank Manscaped for. It was a gift that they included. It was a pair of their boxer briefs. Now, if my boyfriend thought he was going to get these, he was sorely mistaken immediately because I saw right away how nice they were, like very nice quality. And I wore them last night. They were part of my jammies and they're just uh, really soft. I I couldn't get over how soft they were. I kept petting my legs because I was like, ooh, that's nice. So those are mine. Um, There's a nice travel bag in there as well. I I, I might be nice and and hand that over, but uh, and and I might not. I might not, and I might keep that. So there's some great other great products in there I I will be talking about as I go through them and uh, give you my opinion on them. So that is the performance package. So right now you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. That is 20% off with free shipping. Hello at manscaped.com and use code PNG. Unlock his confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Okay, so launching into the subject for today's episode, we are going to start at the beginning, like the very beginning, and then go through it up to the closure of the Stargate program in 95. I do want to put in at this point 
that there were so many damn people involved, so many agencies and committees and so many evolutions over the course of its 23-year-long existence, it was incredibly difficult to piece together what the actual timeline was. I did my very best with this and think I ended up with a, a pretty cohesive chain of events. If I'm off on a year, forgive me. If I'm completely off on anything else, though, and it just irks you to no end, I mean, check my sources. Take it up with the CIA, yo. But also let me know, too, because uh, I want to know. All right, let's get into it. Remote viewing almost never became a thing. In 1972, Hal Putoff, a physicist at Stanford Research Institute, circulated a proposal for a grant to research quantum biology. This proposal landed in New York by chance into the hands of an artist named Ingo Swan, who would become incredibly important for the program and for some key developments as it progressed. Swan, who had a background with personal psychic experiences of his own, was at the time a test subject, part-time for money as he got his artistic career going, with the American Society for Psychical Research. He was already familiar with the laboratory and experiment process by the time Putoff's proposal landed in his hands and was already used to being hooked up to machines to monitor his blood pressure and brain waves and all that as certain psychic experiments were conducted. He wrote Putoff, suggesting if he were ever interested in exploring the boundary between physics of the animate and inanimate, he should consider experiments within the parapsychological field. After explaining some of the experiments he had already taken part in successfully, Putoff invited Swan out to Stanford Research Institute in order to demonstrate some of the things he was talking about. Quite bluntly, Putoff was just curious. One experiment Swan had already performed was sitting beneath a container suspended over his head. It would contain one of eight random objects that a researcher had placed without him seeing or knowing what it was, and it would then be Swan's responsibility to psychically float above his body, look at the object, and then sketch out the impressions of what he sensed was in the container. Those drawings would go to an independent judge who wouldn't know which object Swan was being asked to draw. It was then up to the judge to determine and match the drawing to the correct object. If it was matched, it was determined to be a hit, if not a miss. Swan ended up getting eight matching hits in the correct order, a 1 in 40,000 chance of happening randomly, according to ASPR. Another really interesting successful experiment took place a little while later after Swan became a little bored with the same old experiment over and over. His thinking was that if he could see something random suspended just above his head, what was to say he couldn't do that with a random something a bit further away? So ASPR devised an experiment where a sealed envelope would be randomly selected by a third party from a number of sealed envelopes, all containing the name of a different city and the phone number to their local weather service. The challenge was to see if Swan could perceive the correct weather of the city he would be given. In December of 71, he was given the name Tucson, Arizona. Initially, he saw hot, dry desert. It's important to note his first impression here because it teases a notion that would later be explored regarding psychic impressions received, noise versus signal, which we'll talk about. But essentially, signal is genuine information one would receive via their clear senses, and noise is anything that interferes with that, such as ego, imagination, preconceived notions, etc., etc. So, 
He sees desert because it's Arizona. Swan says after his initial impression, though, suddenly he was able to tune in and he was there in Tucson. He could see buildings nearby, a wet highway. It was cold, nasty, windy, and pouring down rain, which didn't make any sense and went against the initial impression, but that is what he reported. The researcher dialed up the number of the weather service and was told that at that moment, yes, Tucson was having an unusual and unexpected thunderstorm. It was near freezing and they were having torrential downpour. And this specific experiment was repeated numerous times with a high enough success rate that they created a name for what Swan was doing. And the term remote viewing was born. So Putoff was intrigued. He invited Swan out. According to the documentary, Third Eye Spies, Putoff snuck Swan into a forbidden lab at Stanford. Swan appeared to psychically move the needle of a magnetometer, a confidential machine used to sniff out nuclear explosions, and super-duper secret, that was located inside of a vault buried behind 30 feet of concrete. But he says the most impressive thing that happened came next when Swan remote-viewed the interior of the apparatus, sketching out a reasonable facsimile of its inner construction. Putoff would write up what he had observed and circulate this paper privately among colleagues. So imagine his surprise when a couple of representatives of the intelligence community who had seen the paper showed up at SRI with his report in hand, wanting to talk. After learning that the Soviets were dumping a crapload of money into psychical and parapsychological research, there was increasing concern in our intelligence community about the Russians' level of effort and what it might mean if they somehow found a way to exploit it in the Cold War. In an effort to get ahead of the problem, they had been on the lookout for a research laboratory outside of academia that could also handle a classified investigation. Hal Putoff at the time was already performing and developing projects for the government and had already proven himself to be reliable around classified information from his time as a naval intelligence officer and when he was employed by the NSA. So, SRI fit the bill. The CIA reps asked to run SWAN through a few simple tests of their own, and if it provided successful results, asked Putoff if he'd be interested in running a pilot program to further explore these abilities. He said yes, and the tests were arranged. Three boxes were presented to SWAN to remote view their contents, and according to two reports in the general CIA records collection, the subject did well and the descriptions were so startlingly accurate that the representatives suggested that the work be continued and expanded. While it sounds like, in other accounts, two of the three's content descriptions weren't quite as precise, his description of the third was money, what he described as small, brown, irregular, resembles a leaf, but it seems to be alive, turned out to be a moth one of the CIA visitors had captured outside that morning. So, at any rate, the combined results of Swan's readings on all three were sufficient enough to initiate a $50,000 pilot study. Depending on the source you read, it was at this time Russell Targ, a colleague of Putoff's and had already had involvement and interest in the study of parapsychology, officially joined the program. According to the Third Eye Spies documentary and what it says in the general CIA report I just mentioned, he was already quite partnered with Putoff by this point and already had a hand in the experimentations with Swan. 
I am gonna fast forward us a bit through the next evolution. Early remote viewing efforts went from viewing objects or symbols in envelopes to viewing local target sites around San Francisco. These target experiments started out being called the outbounder experiments where they would send a person or a beacon under strict protocols to a target site and Swan would remote view where they were, often successfully. These morphed into even tighter and more restricted protocols to become double-blind experiments because everyone wanted to ensure and double-check and put people through the ringer to make sure there was no other possible explanation as to how this task was successfully being performed. The assumption from any officers or monitors assigned to oversee the program over the course of its life was that there had to be some other reason this phenomena was taking place other than legit psychic abilities. Had to be. It was the entire job of people in the oversight of everything to determine if it was real, bogus, or if something else entirely was taking place. And it was in the best interests of insert name of government agency here, depending on which year we're talking about, from very early on in this process to do so. They certainly had a lot of money and a lot of reputation writing on this. And if they could prove what they were doing at SRI was total BS, then that meant what the Russians were doing was BS. And that seems like an easier solution to their problem rather than understand something real was taking place and having to deal with that. But also something else, something interesting to file away in your knowledge buckets this outbounder experiment would be performed in various independent outside laboratories at the time, oddly enough, producing similar results and ratios of hits to misses. Now, leave it to Ingo to get all uh, wiggly and, and squirmy early on. To expand on these outbounder tests, he suggested they remove the beacon person entirely and simply start giving remote viewers geographical coordinates of a target site. It was codenamed SCANATE, and CRV, or Coordinate Remote Viewing, was born. And this began with some success as well, as you are about to see. In 73, Kit Green, one of the CIA's monitors, asked a colleague for some random coordinates. Nobody knew anything about these coordinates, including Kit, who handed them off to put off to give to Swan. When Swan viewed, he described what he was seeing as such. This seems to be a strange place, somewhat like the lawns that would be found around a military base, but I get the impression that there are some old bunkers around. He sketched out buildings. He was seeing uh, a guardhouse, accordion doors big enough for a car to drive through, four stories below the ground, and a hallway, and handed it back in. Kit took it back to the colleague who had given him the coordinates, who told him, this is incorrect. The coordinates he'd given him was for a log cabin that he'd built in West Virginia. So they all thought, you know, what a huge miss. However, another subject of the program, one Pat Price, was also given the same coordinates. Pat was a former police commissioner and became involved with the program after a chance encounter outside of SRI with Ingo Swan and Hal Putoff, who he knew through Scientology, and had expressed interest in the work they were doing in this program. He himself had experienced moments of intuition and gut instinct that helped him during his time as an officer and on crime scenes and was happy to take a crack at this remote viewing thing. Yes, I said Scientology, okay? Yes, let's just... 
It's a weird connection. I don't understand it. And we don't have time to dive into whatever conspiracy might be rattling around out there about it, especially concerning a part his church may have played a hand in concerning the time around his death. I only mention it because it's information worth being aware of, and and no one seems to want to openly talk about that. My gut tells me it's a whole can of worms and would make a really great episode for someone listening out there. So let's stay focused on the Stargate through line here. Pat also described a military-like facility. What? The two independent descriptions were, duly noted, striking, as they were both, scientifically speaking, huge misses but so similar to each other. Kit Green would drive out to the coordinates to investigate. He found the cabin, and upon further sleuthing in the area, he discovered a sensitive government installation about a half mile from the cabin. Pat was then asked to further explore and provide additional data concerning the interior workings of the site. Pat who didn't have previous military or intelligence background, provided some pretty accurate drawings of the interior of the facility, but also provided a list of past and present project titles of specific classified code names he was seeing on these green folders inside of a filing cabinet, including one of extreme sensitivity, but all of which were classified and top secret. He also provided the code name for the site, all information that would be confirmed as accurate, and other accurate information as to the physical layout of the site. Though he wasn't able to provide accurate names of people at the site, his and Ingo's double-missed hit and their decent amount of combined accuracy set the CIA a scurry. An investigation was launched because, damn it, somebody was leaking sensitive data and was going to get spanked. But by fall of that year, everyone was cleared of any wrongdoing, and some new directors of agency programs involved were so impressed with the data after the dust had settled, the CIA said, carry on, and SRI was asked to propose yet another project. Now, Pat Price was an incredibly good remote viewer. There were a handful of names of especially good psychics that came out of this program, and he was one of their top guys. He had some really incredible hits and would end up being contracted out independently, which is something I'll talk about in a minute. But just to show you the level of ability this guy had and the kind of operations this program played a part in, I wanted to talk about the Patty Hearst kidnapping. It was a very high-profile case, and Pat Price allegedly helped authorities in their efforts to try and solve it. In early 1974, heiress to the William Randolph Hearst newspaper empire, Patty Hearst, was kidnapped from her apartment. According to Russell Targ's book, The Reality of ESP, knowing what SRI was up to, the police turned to them for some help. Put off, Targ, and Pat went down to the Berkeley police station— Pat asked to take a look at the mugshot book, flipped through, and stopped on the photo of Donald DeFreeze, saying, that's the ringleader. Also, this is not a regular kidnapping, it's political, which the police didn't know that at the time. When they pushed Pat for any information that would help them right then in the moment, Pat remote viewed and would describe the car used in the kidnapping and the location that they would find it. 
Knowing where it was that he was describing, the police went to investigate and, lo and behold, found the car. They would later locate Hearst and Donald DeFries, who would in fact be discovered to be the ringleader of the political group that had nabbed the heiress. No official reporting on this case makes mention of Pat Price, so that's why I say allegedly, but Russell Targ says this happened, Pat Price said this happened, and I think the FBI and police department that was involved in the case probably wanted no tarnish to their reputation for having used Pat, so I think it's likely something like this did take place. All right, back to Stargate stuff. SRI was asked to propose yet another project, so the new work proceeded on the premise that the phenomena actually existed and to focus on the development and utilization of these abilities. Funds went to identification and basic study of measurable physiological and psychological characteristics of psychic individuals and attempts to establish actual protocols for validating these abilities. By this time, many more cooks, so to speak, had been added to the kitchen, and the amount of back and forth and argument over protocols and methods and rigorousness made it really difficult to come to a consensus, any consensus. Psychic subjects were still batting above average accuracy, and conclusions from any data analysis remained somewhere between we don't know how they're doing it, and there is no solid reason how they are this successful, but there must be some flaw in the experiment or analysis, or there must be fraud taking place. A new director entered the program who, unfortunately, was extremely skeptical, and in a meeting with Ken Kress, literally told him he could not accept this reality of paranormal functioning, though, to his credit, he did give a nod to his own bias. At this point, support for the project began to vanish somewhat until the first intelligence collection operation to use parapsychology was attempted in 1974. Ken Kress, who was an engineer with the CIA's Office of Technical Services and CIA Program Manager, suggested the Semipalatinsk Research and Development Facility in Russia, and Pat Price was selected to view it. He was given coordinates, and he came back with a sketch of a gantry crane saying it was, quote, a damned big crane because he saw a person walk by who only came up to the axles on the wheels. It's a pretty well-known image, but if you have never seen the sketch that he did of this thing, I've got it linked below and suggest taking a look because it's astounding the similarity between what he drew and the actual crane. Pat would go on to talk about what they were building at the facility. They were building 60-foot diameter steel spheres and welding them together. This observation would be confirmed three years later when it was found they were indeed rolling out these 60-foot diameter steel spheres that were part of a containment vessel for a particle beam weapon intended to shoot down American surveillance satellites. Information that was unknown to U.S. intelligence until it was officially revealed. Once again, scaring the pants off of the intelligence community and once again launching an investigation. The House Intelligence Committee could not accept Pat had psychically seen this and were convinced there had been a security leak. But Congress ultimately found nothing strange, said that what SRI was doing was okay, and told them to press on. Initially, Ken Kress had wanted Pat to come back with Yes, the viewing of the crane, but also four derricks that, to his knowledge at the time, were present on the site. 
When asked why he didn't mention the derricks, Pat would say, wait, I'll check, and proceeded to close his eyes to view it, and a few seconds later said, I didn't see them because they are not there anymore. It took a few weeks for reconnaissance to check the site again. Though all four derricks were in fact still present, it's something to note, I think, that two of them had been disassembled. I don't know, I just, I, I think that's interesting. Unfortunately, after review of his hits and misses of the site, Office of Research and Development officers concluded that since there were no control experiments to compare with this viewing, any good data Pat gave was nothing more than lucky guessing. Lucky guessing. And that information is taken from a report Ken Kress wrote about it, also linked below. I want to take a quick side note here and mention Hella Hamid, another amazing and noted psychic to work with the program. What's so interesting about her is that though she would become one of the most consistent psychics, statistically speaking, that Russell would bring in, the reason she was brought in was to be a control subject, someone basically plucked up off the street, so to speak, though her and Russell were longtime friends before this happened. She'd never done anything remotely having to do with ESP before. She actually thought the subject was rather amusing. She was just some photographer. That's it. So the reason for bringing a control subject in was because the CIA saw how well Pat was doing, how good Ingo was. They were curious to know how someone completely removed from anything like this would compare to those already full-on functioning with these high-level psi abilities. So Russell brought her in. They ran her through their protocol to reach the state to be able to remote view. And one of her viewings, I want to say it was the first, at least very early on, but this viewing was scarily accurate, spot on. They had sent Hal Putoff out to go somewhere random. She described something like a tunnel going up, then going down, enclosed but still open to the sky, and these squares within squares. Well, Hal was standing in the middle of a pedestrian walkway overpassing a highway. It was enclosed entirely by chain-link fence, which, if you looked at it as if you've never seen it before, chain-link fence is, is thousands of, of small squares interlinked with each other, right? This walkway was totally enclosed all the way across from one end. It would look like a tunnel. It rises, then begins to fall once you reach the center. And like Pat with the gantry crane, her sketch of what she was describing, spot on. And this was from a newbie, obviously a natural, but still brand spanking new to the concept. All right. So four months before his death in July of 75, SRI's best subject and star psychic, Pat Price, was hired as an independent contractor away from them to work solely on a spying program for the CIA, literally squashing SRI's continued research and development efforts for the time being. What was the CIA asking of Pat? Spy! Spy! Keep spying! Don't stop! And as we all know from movies, spying is the safest job in the world. According to Ken Kress, a set of Libyan coordinates were passed along to Pat, and a report describing a guerrilla training site was quickly returned. It contained a map-like drawing of the complex, and Pat described a related underwater sabotage training facility several hundred kilometers away on the seacoast. 
This information was passed to the Libyan desk. Some data was evaluated immediately. Some was evaluated after ordering special reconnaissance coverage. New information produced by Pat was verified by that reconnaissance, and the underwater sabotage training facility description was similar to a collateral agent's report. So they were impressed and came back with an escalated task. The Libyan desk wanted to know what was going on inside those buildings, their plans, their intentions, etc. This second requirements list was passed to Price. He would then mysteriously die of a heart attack a few days later. Not long after his death, the official report of what they had been building in Semipalatinsk would be released, matching Price's earlier lucky-guessing description of what they had been working on years before, renewing those good old original fears of Russians having their own psychic spies. And so, the game was back on for SRI. Down one, Pat Price. To know what happens next, you're going to have to join me next week for part two and the ultimate wrap-up of this Stargate remote viewing subject and episode. Uh, there's some good stuff we're talking about next week. I, I'm, I'm really excited. I cannot wait just to give you a little teaser of what is in store for you. Here you go. And the agency stepped back from it, wanted no further public association with psychics or this work might have had something to do with getting railed for their participation previously in another program with mind control and LSD. The DOD felt there was sufficient information coming out that the program should not be dropped and needed further investigation. Six lucky soldiers were selected for the program, one of which was Joe McMonagle, aka Remote Viewer 001. The Gale Committee issued their findings more along the lines of what earlier investigations had found. All looks good here, please carry on. A skeptical senior CIA officer later saw the site confirmed by satellite images to find that the Russians had just launched the largest submarine ever built in history, later saying that it had been a lucky guess. How about Ingo Swan remote viewing himself to Jupiter and describing rings around it at a time that nobody thought there were and nine months before Voyager would get up there and holy crap confirm with their eyeballs that there were in fact rings around Jupiter. If you admit it's real, then others will realize it too because CIA shenanigans. Most remote viewers tend to display some level of synesthesia. He was doing this a lot, and he had always been aware of this gut feeling, always getting this gut feeling. He never told anybody about it, didn't talk about it. He just used it. Pat retrocognitively remote viewed something that once upon a time had been located right where he drew it, but at the time of his viewing hadn't existed for 60 years. It's a real paradox having to accept that something that can't possibly be true still exists whether you like it or not. All right, all for now, you guys. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you so, so much. Be sure to like and follow and subscribe uh, on all of the listening platforms, on all of the social medias. Uh, at Paranorm Girl Pod. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, suggestions for next 
season, which is coming up pretty dang quick, uh, email me, paranormgirlpod at gmail.com. But that is going to be it for this episode today. Thank you once again. And until next week, stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.